Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. You can learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us on Sunday mornings at El Dorado High School and the Performing Arts Center at 9 and 11 a.m. Sunday, July 23rd, 1 p.m., there will be prizes for the best 80s costume. So what we want you to do, uh, we'll have two, two leagues. One league will be family-friendly, and one league will be family-unfriendly. <laughs> and um, and so, so please feel free uh, to sign up. It'll be in the gym after the second service, 80s dodgeball. Um, we... We try to be very spiritual in our community and um, practice very sacred sort of spiritual practices. And so dodgeball is kind of one of those, one of those things that for many years has benefited the church. So um, we're excited about that, 80s dodgeball. Second thing I need you to know uh, is that um, you all text in incredible questions and, uh, and we believe the church should be the safest place to talk about anything. So I've got three questions this morning. Uh, to start with, there's the number if you ever want to text in a question. Number one, here we go. Hi, I'm 15 years old. When I was about 11, I was diagnosed with high-functioning Asperger's. My father, who is a clinically diagnosed narcissist, is the main pastor of a megachurch with 10,000 weekly attendants, and he easily makes an excess amount of money. Awesome. I have always... I didn't, know, I didn't know my son was writing in. <laughs> I have always played uh, with my idea of faith, and when I was 12, I just gave up. How could a man like that make so much money in the name of God? So I decided that if there was a God, he was buried under all the lies people like him tell. So I attempted suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. To this day, I always find myself asking, why would God let someone like that be that successful in his name? How is there a God if that's even possible? Holy moly, what a question. Um, If you're here uh, or listening, wow, thank you for for sending that in. Um, A couple of thoughts. Number one, God is forced to use imperfect people because that's the only kind of people there are. Number two, even in Paul's day, Paul was in prison. Hey, good morning. Hey. I love it. I love it. I love it right there. Like not even. I know. I know. And it keeps you awake, which I like. Uh, even in Paul's day. Good morning. Even in Paul's day, Paul was in prison and there were people out preaching the gospel and peddling it for money. And he even says, whether it's from false motives or from true, no matter what, what Regardless of, of who preaches it or how it's preached, as long as the gospel is preached. Um, so I, I don't know if, if your megachurch um, dad is preaching like the real thing or some sort of health and wealth thing or whatever. But if he's actually preaching the real gospel, Paul had this interesting line where he said, whether, whether from false motives or true, as long as the gospel is preached, he's happy. Which is this kind of crazy thing. The third thing that I've noticed in Christian circles is that people like this eventually get found out. You can have a good, you know, run for 20 years, 30 years, but eventually you will get found out if the church really is all about you, if the church is just all about your salary, if the church is just a platform for your. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I can promise you, young man, that there will come a time when there will be a reckoning for what he's done. That's true for all of us, which is the scary part, but particularly those who claim to speak in his name. 
So how can God use imperfect people? It's the only kind of people he's got. Why would God seemingly bless somebody like that? I have no idea. He blesses somebody like me and I'm an idiot. So I have just, it, it must be the manifold grace of God. I'm so sorry the damage this has done to your faith though. I simply wanna say that what you're feeling has all sorts of biblical precedent uh, in the scriptures where people were preaching the gospel um, and peddling it. Sometimes Paul would be very vociferous in his opposition towards them. Other times he'd say, well, if, as long as they're preaching the gospel, God will sort it out. So, so I don't know how helpful that is, except to say what you're feeling is totally normal and uh, has been wrestled with even in the pages of the scriptures. Second question. What is one way to respond to an agnostic who blames God for allowing their loved one to die, such as uh, beating a painful cancer and then dying of something totally unexpected a week later? Oh my goodness. My question is, how can someone even blame God if they aren't sure he's out there anyway? As a believer, how would I go about navigating this conversation with an agnostic? That's a great question. So an agnostic is somebody who isn't sure. An atheist is sure there is no God. An agnostic says we just can't know. I have found agnostics and atheists to be some of the most spiritual people. And their spirituality is sometimes angry uh, and cynical and resented, you know, resentful. But they still, they, you know, I, I, was, I had a conversation on our podcast with a guy named Godless. And my comment was, man, you spend a lot of time thinking and talking about a God you don't even believe in. And I suspect um, that, that in the case of your friend or other, uh, that they, they deeply want to believe. And this is, this, is, this is the reason for their agnosticism. In other words, they don't come at this issue already an agnostic. It's this issue that causes their agnosticism. How in the world could God set something up so that um, a, a family like this could survive this unbeatable cancer and then bam, die of something random a week later? I totally get that question. And that takes us into a different sort of topic. But how I would approach a, an agnostic in these sorts of questions is I would just make the observation, gee, you spend a lot of time being angry at a God that you're not sure is there. Why do you think that is? See, the best way to talk to people who are wrestling through these big things are just to ask big questions and to sit and listen. Do not correct, do not debate, do not do anything other than listen, empathize. Man, I can see how you could feel that way. How does this work out? Why do you spend so much time thinking about God? I mean, I think those are phenomenal ways to approach a conversation like this. I think the worst thing to do is to say, well, here's like the free will defense about why God you know, allows suffering. I don't think that's very helpful in those situations. I always just find it interesting, and believe me, I rarely meet agnostics or atheists who haven't been hurt by the church. In other words, the people angriest towards God and towards the church usually have had some exposure to it. And so that's, so, so maybe their agnosticism is just a symptom issue, not a root issue. And if you start reacting to the symptom, you'll never get to the root. So for me, to sit, to listen, to ask questions, to pray, to be faithful, to empathize, that's how you have a discussion. Don't feel like you have to defend God in this. Uh, good luck with that. Um, none of us really can in the face of such circumstances. All right, question three. You guys seem very impressed or very bored with these answers. Gonna throw a morbid question your way, so brace yourself. Did you ever wonder if free will is an illusion? Like we've all been pre-programmed by God to be good or evil. 
does God have free will? Oh, is that the end of the question? All right, first of all, remember when the movie The Matrix came out? You guys, some, some of you olders, like that was pretty revolutionary. Yeah, you're olders. Yeah. Some of the kids don't even, my, my kids have never heard of The Matrix. They're like, what is that? And that's just bad parenting on my, my, my part, really. But, and, and the reason that movie was so profound is it was dealing with free will and determinism. It was dealing with illusion versus reality. I mean, it was all these really wonderful and beautiful philosophical issues. Is it possible that we're all pre-programmed puppets? Um, okay, sure. In, in some logical possible universe, uh, sure, that's probably true. The issue is, the way the scriptures present God is that God is interested in love and relationship, and those things require free will. Hence the evil in the world, hence the, the, the options that people have either to embrace God or to reject God, hence the suffering in the world. I mean, the, the whole thing goes down. I mean, it, and it, it also depends on how you define God. If you define God in the classic Western uh, Greek sense, God is immutable, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, he's just up there and he's static, which is really Greek Hellenistic philosophy, then okay, this God could probably pre-program everything. But the God presented in the Bible is none of those things. Yes, he's everywhere and yes, he's all powerful, yes, but he's very dynamic. He's interacting with people. Okay, well, since you prayed, I won't do this. Or since you did this, I will do this. I mean, it's constantly. And, the, and, and God is presented in the Bible is actually a community of persons. One essence of God, but three persons in self-sacrificial loving community that overflows into the creation of humanity. All, at bottom, it's all relational. And relational means free will. Absolutely and at bottom. So do I ever wonder, does God have free will? Yes. Now I'm, I'm, I'm answering as a you know, Bible guy. I'm not answering like philosophically because we could have all sorts of interesting philosophical questions, but the Bible seemingly, I think overwhelmingly presents the idea that, that human beings are genuinely free and that God genuinely responds to the decisions that human beings make. He hasn't pre-scripted it all out there and we're just acting out a predetermined script, not even remotely. I don't think you can see that from the text, but that's a much bigger conversation. All right, sound good? Yeah, you don't care. Okay, thank you. It's like, okay, we endured that part. I always have fun, but you know, you guys, it's holiday weekend. You're sleepy. I mean, I feel your sleepiness. In fact, I'm sleepy just looking at you. Um, uh, and thirdly, the Q&A isn't even the best part. The best part's the stories. Absolutely. So here's Joanna. Say hello. Yes, this is what you're here for. This is what you're here for. Now, Joanna, if I had, she is the older sister I, I always wanted and never had. Oh, you're like yep. My little yep. Yep. Uh, so there's a two year age difference. Um, <laughs> but if you notice, if you notice, um, what she's wearing is uh, this is a Pearl Jam t shirt. So on the back, We've got uh, the 2017 Pearl Jam. So, and this is of her own volition. She was a Pearl Jam. This is not my discipleship over her. This is her discipleship over me. So, any, and, and we didn't have time because we ran out of time. We played a little Bruce Springsteen, but born in the USA for 4th of July. We played a little Def Leppard, Rock of Ages, because it just feels like one of those like 80s dodgeball songs. 
But this one was deep was going to be on next, but we ran out of time in honor of Joanna. So Joanna, this is the nine o'clock service. Hopefully they're more excited for you than they are for me. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Joanna, and on any given day, I wrestle with anger, impatience, insecurity, anxiety, purpose, and grief. Not all at the same time. <laughs> Thankfully. Uh, I also have a bit of a potty mouth, but I don't really think that I struggle with that because I enjoy it too much. So That's why she wrote it out. We had to, we had to approve the words. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Still no F-bombs, So I was born in the Netherlands, and I had an idyllic childhood. My parents owned and ran a resort, and I spent the first part of my life with two stay-at-home parents in the middle of seven acres of woods where I could ride my bike, play on our private playground. It was ideal. It was really super cool. Um, I don't recall going to church uh, during those earlier years. However, my parents um, were very uh, faith-oriented. They uh, really walked their talk. Uh, they prayed before and after every meal. Whoa. We read the children's Bible um, after every dinner. Um, and even after we moved to the States, we continued to read the, the Dutch version of the children's Bible just to keep up our language. Uh, my parents painted a healthy picture of a loving God, um, and it was, it was on that that my foundation of faith was laid. When my sister and I were six and eight, and my mom was pregnant with sister number two, or number three, depending how you look at it, they packed up everything they owned, and they moved sight unseen to the U.S., to Southern California, which blows me away if I think about that right now. Um, they'd never visited, uh, but they were tired of the anti-business-friendly environment in the Netherlands. They wanted to expand their resort. They couldn't get building permits, blah, 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 blah. Um, we did have, I had an uncle here, and he kept telling my mom, this is the land of milk and honey, and, and you can, you know, make your own destiny here. So off we went. Um, we got plugged into a church. I do have memories there, um, and we're very active. We were volunteers from the get-go. Um, my dad soon was treasurer of the church. My mom was a bookkeeper, and in high school, I was the payroll clerk at age 14. I made two bucks an hour. Woo! Saved enough to put a down payment on a car, though. Um, then I hit high school and fell in sort of with the bad crowd and did all the stupid things a lot of teenagers do, Kids. sex and drugs and rock and roll, but I never quit believing. Um, fast forward a few years, I got married and we'd adopted a little girl and had a little boy, kind of the old fashioned way. Um, I felt this real hunger to, to start walking out my faith again and get plugged in with the church. Um, I took my daughter while my husband and, home, uh, and, and son stayed at home for the first few months, but then my husband soon wanted to see where I was taking his daughter on Sundays. Um, and before you know it, he was baptized, um, and our entire family became really involved with the church. We taught um, Sunday school as a family, we, you know, we teach the two-year-olds two when my son was in kindergarten. It just was really a great family affair. What's remarkable about this is that he'd been a practicing alcoholic our entire marriage. My husband, that is, not my son. Um, he'd been through um, uh, outpatient treatment 
got involved in AA, but he was still practicing. But one day, he fell to his knees in the garage by himself, and he said, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. And he was sober from that point on until about eight years later when he suffered a series of massive heart attacks and died and left me with an 8- and a 12-year-old. I mean, I was in shock. I have very few memories of that first year in my life. One of my uh, pastor friends calls it the year of the first, first birthday, first anniversary, first this, first that. And um, I, I didn't know how I would go on. I'm all, well, I want to say WTF, but I won't. So um, I couldn't believe that after praying for sobriety for all those years and having him be sober, we'd gone through infertility treatments, you know, we're in the New England Journal of Medicine because of some revolutionary technology that I won't bore you with. Um, but I couldn't believe that after all of this, he would just die. And I had said to God, I wasn't really angry, but I wanted to say to him, dude, seriously, you owe me some explanations when I get to heaven. You seriously do. I want to know why you did this. So maybe I really was angry. Um, then 13 months later, my dad, who lived very nearby and who was acting as kind of a, of a role model in the father role, uh, dropped dead of an aneurysm. WTF again. And I just, I couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't figure it out. I wanted explanations. I'm a very rational kind of person. I like linear thinking. I want to know why A and then B and then C. Tell me. I, I need to know that. Mm. Um, what that also triggered, the death of my husband and my father, was that my daughter, who was already acting out, just went bat crazy, um, just really was unmanageable, and she was later diagnosed with a mental illness, and we ended up placing her in a residential facility, which was really, really hard yeah. um, on all of us. Um, and after she was played, placed, all of a sudden I started getting panic attacks and anxiety, and I was on medication for a number of years. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. I had resigned myself to being a single mom and maybe having a gentleman friend uh, once my kids were off to college. Um, but God or somebody had other plans. Um, as I said, being a single parent is the hardest thing I've ever done. And along comes a gentleman named Jonathan who um, was the father of one of my son's best friends. One thing led to another. Um, and we got married. Whoa. And like it does. Yeah. One thing. <laughs> One thing. Led to another. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I, I say that Jonathan is an answer to a prayer that I didn't know I had prayed. Hmm. Um, my kids adore him. My family adores him. Um, my adult son at age 19 or so asked Jonathan to adopt him, not to replace his father who'd passed away, but to, uh, to acknowledge the absolutely phenomenal role Jonathan had played in his life um, and in our family's life. Um, and next month, we will have been married 18 years, so Come on. it's pretty cool. Come on. Let me go off on a little rabbit trail for a moment and, and tell you about my journey with grief. 
Grief is a beast and a bugger and another B word, which I won't use, um, that can sneak up on you when you least expect it. It can sucker punch you at the most inopportune time. After I placed my daughter, I was finally able to fully grieve, and I think that's what triggered my panic and anxiety attacks. Um, today, I'm, I'm very happily married. I, my life is wonderful. I'm so blessed, and I'm so grateful. But guess what? Every now and then, I'm still blindsided by grief. Um, it's been 20 years since he's been gone, and, and, and my dad, too. Although, you know, your dad's supposed to die before you, but your husband and father of your children is not supposed to die that early. Um, and I've done a lot of reading on grief, um, and I've come to realize that in Western society, we don't do grief. We have little, go little stages of grief, check, 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 done. Well, that's not how it works. And, and I think as a community, um, we can be much better at giving those in grief permission to grieve, even encouraging them to grieve. Mm. Um, and grieving alongside those in the midst of it can be a real gift. Um, I also wrestle with seeking purpose in my life. Um, I think that stems a little bit from insecurities. Uh, in 2006, I was asked to become an elder at the church we were involved with. I had some serious reservations. But, but you're a woman. <laughs> I'm getting to that part. Oh, Don't okay. steal my thunder. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, thought, I thought girls weren't allowed to do anything. Well, yeah. Um, I had some serious reservations because I had committed to not doing any more volunteer positions. Um, but after talking with Jonathan and my family, um, they agreed that it was the right thing to do. And I knew it was the right thing to do because the day I agreed, I got evicted from my office and a bunch of other crap hit the fan. And I think it really was spiritual warfare because I had... So this is the edited version. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, I'm doing well. No F-bombs so far. No. Nope. Good? Yeah. Um, so um, two years later, the senior pastor moved to Kenya, um, and this particular church was not part of a denomination, so there wasn't a handbook or guidelines, guidelines on how to do a pastoral search. Um, I really found purpose there because I truly believe God placed me in that elder position at the precise time needed since none of the other elders had the business experience that an executive search required. It took us 10 months, spending like 15 to 20 hours a week in addition to running my own firm, but we did find the right candidate to be the new senior pastor who's still there today. Um, it was during this process that I first became aware that there was a controversy with women in leadership and women teaching. Frankly, I was stunned that this even was a thing. I had no idea. I uh, must have been living under a rock or in a pretty healthy church. I don't know. Um, I was lectured by more than one pastoral candidate um, about women's places and roles, because I was their point of contact. Um, scared some of them off, I think. Um, I'm not saying what women do isn't important, one of the candidates said to me. It's just different. I want to smack him upside his left ear. Really? Needless to say, that candidate did not get the position. Um, and although I'm trying to be gracious about it, um, it's still hurtful to me personally that um, when I'm confronted with those who don't believe that women should take that leadership or teaching role, because I really feel that God used my giftings um, in that church setting. And, and when somebody says women shouldn't be in that setting, I find it really minimizing. Um, 
Fast forward a few years, uh, before Vox, um, we'd spent about three, four years floating around at various churches, um, not really plugging in. Um, here's where I struggled with purpose again. I felt aimless, uh, kind of rudderless, if you will. Um, I sought out spiritual direction, um, and after my, first, my very first session, which was a freebie, <laughs> became aware of the fact that the Vox podcast was launching a church. I instantly knew within a thousand percent certainty that this is where we were supposed to go, or I was supposed mm. to go. Fortunately, Jonathan agreed. Um, and I, I had purpose again, and I just canceled the rest of the spiritual direction sessions because I thought, <laughs> you know, okay, I got purpose. I know what I'm doing. Um, being in a place <laughs> where I have been able to use my gifting again, where I can really belong and be part of a team. And I wrote misfits, doubters, and oddballs, but, you know, some of us are sort of normal. Um, who really do love Jesus is so refreshing and so energizing and so wonderful. Um, my life is not all sunshine and roses. Um, ang my anger and impatience get the better of me often. I also get anxious and worry about stupid things, like, will I get this tax return done on time? I mean, I'm, I'm just totally stressed about that. I mean, it's just stupid, because I know in God's demonstrated time and time again, not only does he provide all the resources we need in terms of money, but in terms of time as well. Um, I also know that no matter what happens and what the cause is, because I know that God, now, that God didn't cause those deaths and, and me being in those circumstances. Um, but I do know that God is capable and always will redeem That's those right. horrible things that happen to us. Yeah. Um, he's demonstrated that to me time and time again. And so I'm choosing to focus on that and embrace gratitude and contentment. Come Thank on. You. Come on. Great job. Boom. Oh, WTF, by the way, means what the frogs. So if you were wondering what that was referenced to. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you bring beauty out of ashes. Um, we hate the ashes. We hate the suffering. We hate to hear stories of people uh, or experience stories ourselves of things that just don't make sense, of things that just seem tragic, of things that, why would you allow this to happen? And we're grateful for the freedom we have, not only to lament and to come before you in agony, but that in the long view, you do do amazing things. And, um, and so we're grateful for that. That's what fuels our worship this morning. If we're in a great spot, hallelujah, we're full of praise. If we're in a bad spot, uh, we're, we're hopeful. That, yeah, that whatever this is doesn't have the last word over us. So to that end, God, we turn our, our hearts and our minds to you through music. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. Um, I want to let you know of something else coming up uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, the, the church launched a year ago um, with the image in our minds of Jesus dining with people in his day that were kind of the misfits, the outcasts, the unsavory type. So it was something called table fellowship. And table fellowship in the first century really designated kinship and acceptance. And it was one of the ways that Jesus scandalized his contemporaries because he was eating with people before they repented. He was eating with sinners before they got their acts together. 
And we thought, what a beautiful picture of what a church should be. And uh, so, so we're, we, we use the table as a metaphor for what the role of the church is in the world. And uh, so every Sunday we celebrate the Lord's table corporately. We take the bread and the cup together. And then we did something over the spring that we called table fellowships, where people in the church open their homes for other people in the church. And we call, that, uh, call those table fellowships. But there's something we want to introduce over the summer that really these first two expressions of table lead to and point to. And that is simply uh, something called, we, we call personal table, where people in our community open their homes and their tables for people in their spheres of influence, not people from the church. And those are neighbors, those are business associates after work, those are uh, people on your kids' uh, club soccer team, the parents that you've been getting to know. It's, it's a bit more of a risk. It's the extension of hospitality. It's for introverts, you know, maybe you invite four people. Uh, for extroverts, you invite 37. Um, but, but here's the thing. I mean, it, it, it literally, like in my neighborhood, I wave at people. I'm always walking, so I'm waving at people, which is just the dorkiest thing ever. Uh, and I rarely, about 30% of the time, get a wave back. The other 30% of the time, they don't see me, which I, I don't, how do you miss this? And then the other 30% of the time, literally, they look and they look away. And I don't care. I, I am, but the, I've, I've got a list on my phone of neighbors and addresses and names. And so that I, so I can greet people by name. And, and our goal is to just throw a little block party this summer. Um, because our neighborhood has zero vibe. I mean, it's literally everyone just goes into their driveways, into their garages, end of story. And uh, so we are, so that's a, our expression of table, uh, personal table, is that we're going to th throw a block party and see what happens. But here's the thing. There's a whole bunch of you that are, have said, I'm interested in learning how to do this. So we're actually putting together just a little, I don't know, workshop maybe over at my house a couple Sundays from now to brainstorm ideas about how to do this. And so um, I want to let you know, go ahead, that's Personal Table Workshop, Sunday, July 16th. Please go, we've only got room for about 30 of you. So go to voxoc.com slash personal table if that's something you are interested in or something you've done. We'd love to hear what you do. Um, but the idea is that there would be 30 of us over the summer or more uh, who would do this to just see what happens because we really do think kitchen tables can change the world. Now, at this point, we were going to show you a Heineken commercial that was very popular on Facebook, but we don't have time for that. So no video. But um, let's go to the question that was asked out of the teaching last week. And we'll dive, in, uh, dive into the scriptures right now. Remember last week, we're, we're talking about this manifesto for revolution, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus offers this light teaching. He says, hey, it was said to the people long ago, don't murder. But I'm telling you, if you're angry, if you call your, your, uh, if, if, if you call, you know, your neighbor, you fool, if you show contempt, you're in danger of judgment and ultimately the fires of hell. Therefore, if you are at the altar offering a sacrifice, remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there and go be reconciled. Or if you're on the way to court with an adversary, settle matters quickly, be, make friends with them before you even get to court. Um, because you don't want to trust the court, you want to trust the kingdom. And, and so it was this teaching about reconciliation out of anger. And, and we got a ton of feedback going, okay, that sounds great, how do you do it? How do you do this? 
So this was uh, a typical of a question we got. You spoke on what Jesus said about reconciliation with those uh, you are angry with. Okay, what if they won't reconcile? What if they're just dot, 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 horrible? What then? Reconcile with yourself, with God? What do you do then? What do you do with that anger? I want to be an evolved Christ follower. Sorry, you can't be a Christ follower and be evolved. It's uh, evolution. Is... I want to love this person with Christ's heart, have an eternal perspective, but I don't. I hate this person. They're hurting me and my kids on a continual, deliberate, immediate basis. What do I do with that anger? Seriously, pray it away. What a great question. And I love the honesty. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for not trying to polish it up by, well, you know, um, I, I, I have minor feelings of dislike. No, I really hate this person. And I don't, and actually, and you didn't say this, but actually hating this person is a lot easier than doing anything else. So what I want to do is I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness today. Um, uh, because I'm thinking, I'm thinking that maybe some of you have been hurt by other people. I don't know, I just get this sense that maybe there's relational conflict in this room. And, um, and I'm an expert on forgiveness because I've had to ask so much of it for my wife. So I've learned a few things along the way. Now, I want to be really, really clear in answer to the question what forgiveness is not. All right, so first, forgiving is not condoning them. Do you understand that? Forgiving is not accepting what they did or pretending it wasn't bad or, or denying that it was bad or justifying it or approving it. No, 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 no. Forgiving is feeling the full weight of what they did in all of its wrongness. Forgiveness begins with truth-telling, okay? So it's not condoning them because I, I, I think sometimes we think, okay, forgiving just means that it wasn't that bad. No, no, it was that bad that hence the need for forgiveness. Secondly, forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. So if this person, questioner, is continually hurting you, forgiving them is separate from putting up strong boundaries so that they don't hurt you again. Forgiving, in an ideal world, yep, we meet, we reconcile, it's good, we forget it. But there are toxic, destructive, horrible people out there. And forgiving them does not mean that you give them the opportunity to keep hurting you. Do you understand that? That is so important. It is okay to forgive and still get a restraining order. It's okay to forgive and make sure you're never alone with that person. Right? This is a big deal to understand. Forgive, there are times when forgiveness requires remembering and building structures around so that you're not hurt again and again. Okay, and that goes to the next point. Forgiving doesn't always mean reconciling. It takes two to reconcile, right? It takes two to make everything okay, everything all right, as the famous rapper said, it takes two. I'm Rob Bass, came to get down. I'm not internationally known, but I'm known throughout the microphone. I get crazy, I mean, outrageous. Stay for me if you're contagious. Nothing. A few of the 80s, children of the 80s are like, in. Everyone else is like, that doesn't sound like Drake. Um, <laughs> forgiveness does not mean reconciling. Sometimes, sometimes, I mean, reconciliation is the goal, but sometimes the person's dead and you're angry at them. Or they're in a position of power over you, like your boss. 
And you can't just go in and unload <laughs> without consequence. Sometimes reconciliation is impossible. No, it's the goal. And in an ideal situation, we want to forget and uh, we want to forgive and we want to be reconciled, of course. But reconciliation takes two. I mean, there was, there was somebody who deeply hurt me in a church context. I mean, just on a continual, undercutting, constant basis. And so I went to go apologize to him. Face to face, let's go out to lunch. And I said, I'm so sorry. I want to apologize for letting our relationship get to this point. And he just kept, he just didn't even acknowledge the apology. He just kept attacking me right there. I mean, it didn't even dawn on him that I was apologizing. I mean, it was just ridiculous. So in that case, there was no reconciliation. But that's not on me at this point, right? So forgiving doesn't always mean reconciliation. Just because I forgive you doesn't mean our relationship goes back to the way it was, correct? Particularly in situations where there was abuse or harm. Next, forgiveness is a different issue than justice and consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean that I now have to protect you from the natural consequences of what you've done, right? Sometimes it's those consequences that actually wake you up to what it was that you did and the significant significance of it. Make sense? Are you with me on this stuff? This isn't confusing, or are you with me? Okay, you guys are either so in, or this is so heavy, or I've lost you completely. Forgiveness is always personal. So I will hear people say this, I was hurt by the church. No, you were not. You were hurt by somebody in the church who did something. You cannot forgive faceless entities. Bank of America hurt me. Nope. <laughs> it was somebody in Bank of America that hurt you. So, you know, I hate the church. Okay. Odds are somebody in the church did something, and it's that person that needs to be named and forgiven. It's not just the entity of the church. It's the, the people, the, the people that created the culture, the, the leadership, the, the person that said something, whatever it is. Forgiveness is always personal not institutional. And then lastly, this is the no-duh portion. Forgiveness is a process. You can just decide to forgive and maybe today, simply not wanting to kill them is like a major step, all right? I'm saying that playfully. Um, maybe today, simply not wishing their harm is a good step. Right? Forgiveness does not happen all at once. If you were abused 27 years ago, you've got 27 years of stuff to unwind. It just doesn't happen often that quickly. Are you with me on this stuff? This is really, really important that we understand. And maybe this is no done. You've, you've already got it. But I find there's a lot of confusion about what forgiveness means and doesn't mean. Now, for Jesus... Forgiveness is one of the most important practices of kingdom people. If you have a Bible, go to Matthew 18. And Jesus, hey Andy, are you back there? Yeah. Hey, can you grab my orange backpack? I think I have two little binders in there that I forgot to bring out. Thank you. And it's so comforting knowing you're right there. Oh, did you really? Oh, that's awesome. Now, now, Andy has one of these, and I'll let you decide who had theirs first. All right, now, 
You may have heard me tell this one before. This parable just wrecks me every single time. Jesus and forgiveness. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter. Now, they've just talked about sin in the church. And what a disciple does when another disciple sins against them. You go first and deal with it by yourself. If that doesn't work, you take a witness, blah, blah, blah. Then Peter asks the natural question. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter here, the traditional, from what we can see, the traditional Jewish teaching was that you forgive them up to three times. So Jesus doubles it and adds one because seven's the number of perfection. And boom, up to seven times like he's being so magnanimous. Jesus says, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, which, uh, for your Bible geeks, this is a reference to Genesis 4 and a guy named, Le, a guy named Lamech who talked about 77, like avenging people 77 times. It's just an interesting little like nuance for Bible geeks. Okay, you don't care. Now, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had be sold to repay his debt. At this, the servant fell on the knees before the king and said, be patient with me. I will pay back everything. Now the irony is there's no way you're paying back 10,000 talents in those days. Okay, look at me. This is fascinating math right here. One denarius, look at me, is one day's pay. Okay, 10,000 denarii equals one talent. 10,000 talents, which is the amount that the guy owed the king, right, is how many days pay? Millions, millions. It's an impossible sum. It's like, it's like if, so, if the IRS said, hey, Mike, you owe $2 billion. It'd be like, okay. I mean, there's just no, you can take everything I have and maybe get 50 grand. I mean, it just, there's, it's like, it's, the, it's an extreme, like, nutty amount of money. There's just no way. How do you even get into a debt like that? Right? So the point of Jesus' parable isn't contrasting a small debt with a big one. It's contrasting an unrepayable debt with a repayable debt. So King says to servant number one, Hey, dude, you owe me 10,000 talents. What the heck? Servant number one comes back and says, be patient with me, I'll pay it back. No, he won't. He never will. Utterly impossible. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Now, where did that debt go? If the king or the master cancels the debt, who eats it? The king. The king absorbs the debt, correct? That becomes important in a second. But then that servant, servant number one, went out. He found one of his fellow servants, servant number two, who owed him a hundred denarii. Right? A hundred days work. Totally repayable. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. He demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and said the same thing that the first servant had said to the king. Be patient with me and I will pay it back. He actually could. 
But he refused and said he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, told the master everything that happened. The master called the servant. Servant number one said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jails to be tortured until he paid back all he owed, which was never. This is how, and then, and then here's this, the nice Jesus warm fuzzy conclusion. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Oh, okay. No problem. Let's talk about this for a second. So, the king and Joanna at 14. The king has a ledger, has debits and credits, and according to this ledger, you owe me 10,000 talents, correct? The servant comes in, there's no, there's no possible way. You owe $2 billion. Well, I'll pay, be patient with me. Be kind-hearted with me. I'll pay it back. No, you won't. But the king had mercy and did what? Forgave the debt. He closed the books and ate the debt himself. But the parable turns on the fact that the king wasn't the only guy that had books, right? The servant had books too. And according to this book... You owe me 100 days wages. Oh, okay. Sounds good. Be patient with me and I'll pay it back, which he could have. But instead of transitioning or transferring the mercy that he'd received from the king, the servant said, no, 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 no. The books are more important and had that servant thrown into prison. Instead of closing the books, what did servant number one do? Played by their rules. So when the king found out about it, what's the king do? Oh, if it's the books you're going to insist on using, then I will use the books with you. Correct? Forgiveness, according to Jesus, begins when you begin to abandon bookkeeping altogether. I mean, the teaching of Jesus is very simple. If it's the books you insist on, then the books will be used for you. Remember, Jesus says this later in the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever judgment, whatever measure you use against others, that measure will be used against you. If you insist on the books with other people, then God will insist on the books with you. And guess what? Unrepayable for all of us. Make sense? Now, how does that work? I mean, if forgiveness begins by closing the books, but yet you just said, I'm supposed to remember and not just deny or pretend, how does forgiveness work? Go ahead and put 2 Peter up. Notice this. When they hurled insults at Jesus on the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he what? He entrusted himself to one who judges justly. Or Paul will say it this way in Romans. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. How about that? <laughs> Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live out peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, 
but leave room for what? God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. See, man, revenge is so fun. Retaliation is so great, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. It is. I love getting back at the people that hurt me. And sometimes getting back at them is real subtle. Like, I will just wait for them to fall and then celebrate when they do. Right? There have been some pastors that I just don't like in the kingdom. And when they fall, I'm like, knew it. Sucker. (laughs) Cult leader. Right? Boy, that that sounds like the kind of heart Jesus is interested in. So sometimes retaliation can be real passive. I'm just, I'm going to celebrate when they mourn, and I'm going to mourn when they celebrate. Right? Sometimes retaliation is pretty immediate. Right? Somebody says something to you, and you're like, your mom. (laughs) Somebody cuts you off in traffic, you cut them off. I mean, it's the most natural thing in the world to retaliate. And yet, here we have two instances, Jesus and Paul, that invite us to trust God's justice, to give up our right to get even. Dang, I didn't even know that was an option. I just thought getting even is what we do, right? Because they'll do it again if I don't show them. But revenge is this funny thing. It always escalates and it always inflates the person who's taking revenge out, correct? Because in in essence, what you're saying, if you believe in God, if you're a Jesus follower, what you're saying when you take revenge into your own hands is saying, okay, God, I don't trust your time. I don't trust your way. I don't trust that you'll take care of this. I have to show them and correct them. It's like saying, God, you're in my seat. Sorry. So forgiveness begins when you realize, okay, okay, okay. It's not condoning. It's not reconciling necessarily. It's not forgetting necessarily. Well, what is it then? Well, it's closing the books. It's realizing, okay, the unrepayable debt that has been forgiven now has to be translated into my forgiveness of other debts. Yeah, 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 but how do you do that? (laughs) Well, first step is you entrust that God's justice will be done against that person for what they've done. Now, how fun does that sound? Zero. Zero fun. Because who is absorbing the debt? We are. It costs something to close the books. We absorb the debt. It's much easier to just pass that sucker on. So when we close the books, we're saying, okay, God, I forsake my right to get even. Sorry, I, I, I know, I know. She just sat down next to you randomly. I love it. <laughs> Hello, I'm in church. I, I forsake my right to get even, and I trust that your justice will be done. Now, how easy is that to do if you've been abused? Now, again, there might be legal consequences, right? Or your, your, your spouse, you know, abandoned you. I mean, that's separate. But to say as much as I want to hurt them back, 
I won't do it. I mean, this is, this is what it looks like. Here's, here's the, our example in this. Next slide. In your anger, nope, go ahead to, to Ephesians. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give what? The devil a foothold. Interesting. Now, the word foothold there literally means a room in a house. And so for those of you that take like this idea of an adversary seriously, one of the easiest ways to give the adversary entrance is unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment. So literally you could translate this. Listen, when you're angry, don't sin. Don't go on angering. Resolve it as soon as you can. Why? Because the enemy will use that to grow bitterness, resentment, cynicism in your heart. Or Jesus, next, when he was on the cross, verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him right there with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, what? Right. Peter tells us that at that moment, he was entrusting himself to the Father. Listen, there are going to be times, and there have been times, when you're handed a big ball of ugly. Right? You're handed a wound. Picture it like just as a ball for a second. The easiest thing to do is to throw that ball right back, that wound right back at the person who gave it to you. Right? Or sometimes you can't. Maybe that person's no longer here. Maybe that person's unreachable. Maybe that person is in a position of power. So what you do is you end up carrying this wound around. Or, or maybe you think, um, well, I deserved it. And you internalize it. Or maybe you just feel stuck with it. The problem is if you don't deal with it, what's going to happen? You're going to start throwing it at other people, the people closest to you, your family, your friends, right? You ever been around somebody who's super angry when they drive? They were angry before they got in the car, right? Very rarely, very rarely are the things we are angry at are the real things we're angry at. So we're just carried around this stuff. So what Jesus does on the cross is give us a different option. Rather than just carrying it or rather than throwing it, Jesus gives us the option of taking that evil out of circulation, of closing the books, absorbing the pain ourselves. And parents, isn't this what you want to do with your children? The wounds that you'd received from your family, the last thing we want to do is pass those along, correct? And so we do the hard work of dealing with those things so that they're not just blowing out all over our kids. Jesus gives us the idea that it is possible to absorb and to forgive so that evil, instead of being retaliated and boomeranging, that evil gets taken out of circulation. So just a couple of thoughts as we close. Now we have, I'm, I'm looking at therapists all over, so I'm gonna be interested to see whether or not they agree. Bruce, am I doing all right on this? Okay? Okay, he'll write me a letter later and say, well. All right. Maybe you should have taught this, man. Come on. Yeah, why, why am I up here? I got nothing. All I know how to, is to do wrong and to ask for forgiveness. That's the only thing I got going. So it really starts 
See, forgiveness, and this is the thing that's so sucky. What if they don't get caught or found out? We're still invited to forgive them. What if nobody will ever know? We're still invited to forgive them. What if they will prosper and be blessed as if they'd done no wrong? We're still invited to forgive them. What if they're not sorry? We're still invited to forgive them. One of my favorite authors just put it this way. Forgiveness is setting somebody free and finding out it was you. Right? This is about your freedom and your discipleship and your joy. This is not dependent upon what the other person does. Next slide. How do we begin? Well, like we've said, we give up the right to revenge and retaliate and to get even, even though we feel the full weight of their sin against us. We're not denying it happened. We begin to understand that something has to go on, not in, go on, yes, between us and God regarding this person. I entrust them to God and to God's justice instead of taking revenge myself. God, you're in your seat. I'll stand over here and trust this will be dealt with. Next. I give up bookkeeping altogether. I begin to make it a practice to give up keeping score. And then we start to ask God's wisdom in reconciliation and we pray, and this is the part that kills me. And brothers and sisters, I have done this, all right? I have done this with people who've hurt me. I have forced myself. I don't even mean it. I will say, God bless this person. So let's call them Pete. God bless Pete. That's all I can say. I don't even mean it. But as I pray that long enough, I don't know there is some point when I actually begin to desire God's best for them because something has changed in me. So how do you know when you've actually forgiven somebody? Well, I keep no record of wrongs. Now what that means is I'm no longer holding their sin against them. I may be remembering it to protect myself, but I'm not holding it against them. I refuse to gossip about what they did. Man, I love telling people what this guy did to me. I've, I've been at pastor's conferences where I've been like, let me tell you how crappy church people can be. I don't mention the, but, and I just give examples, and it's awesome. Because people are horrified. Like, I can't believe they treat, you're amazing. Why do people treat you that way? You have great heart. I'm like, yeah, I'm amazing. <laughs> You know you've forgiven someone when you can celebrate when they celebrate and you mourn when they mourn. And you know you've forgiven when there's no resentment. And resentment is typically the replaying of the harm over and over and over. Now, brothers and sisters, yeah, I love this. Real forgiveness leaves justice and vengeance in the hands of God and does not engage in the reciprocity and retaliation conventions so common in Jesus' world and ours. Now, how much of the real process of forgiving somebody have we covered today? 2%? I mean, this is barely scratching the surface of the work that's required. But my bet is each one of us are carrying around something handed to us. And I want to open us up to the possibility there are other options than just carrying it around or giving it back. And so, as always, we're going to take the the Lord's Supper together in response to this. And the Lord's Supper is the picture of a unity of a people who are committed to reconciliation. 
It is more important that instead of taking the bread and the cup that you go and be reconciled. If you want, we have these little prayer stations. If you want to write the name of somebody, unless it's mine, if you want to write the name of the person that you want, or maybe not the name, but just details of the person that you want to begin to pray for and take that with you and begin to pray, God, I hate this person, but I pray that you would bless them. And see what happens when you do that. Just see what happens. Or maybe it's, I need God's help to to forgive this person and let us pray for you too. So those prayer stations and the prayer shawls and prayer people will be over there. And then the giving uh, participation boxes are around the room. But this is all the stuff we kind of normally do at this point. But we really felt like before moving on in the sermon, we wanted to spend a little bit of time on this. So let me pray. Nice light topic this morning. Heavenly Father, I am mindful of how ridiculous I am in keeping score against others when (laughs) you have shown so much grace to me. And so um, I pray for the just absolute intervention of your Holy Spirit in the lives of some of my brothers and sisters who have given the enemy a foothold because they've just been unable to come to the place where they forgive someone who's hurt them. I pray, Lord Jesus, for the parents who are tasked with absorbing pain so it doesn't get passed on to their children. I pray for the people who've been abused. I pray for the people who've been physically harmed by others. I pray for the people who've been abandoned and betrayed. God, all of this is nice, easy religious talk. The reality of it is so much harder. It feels like a death. And our prayer is that it leads to a resurrection. And so, God, I pray in the name of Jesus for your grace to be present. We love you and we bless you. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, would you stand with me? Hey, so how'd we do? I mean, we're here for you. We're here, we're here to meet your preferences. And um, we hope it was good. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so kidding. Um, my brothers and sisters, bless you. Uh, I feel so inadequate. For some reason, I walked up and I'm like, man, I, I don't, like this is such a big topic and we can hardly do it justice. And so uh, we have so many resources that we're in touch with of folks who can help uh, dig deeper um, if this is something that's, that is really being impressed upon you. So please find someone in a Vox shirt or we have community pastors floating around if we can help. Now, to help a bit with the heaviness of the topic, um, it's, it's, this is America's day in two days. It's America in July 4th. And so we felt like we wanted to do Pi Day, not, on, not in March uh, for the math geeks. We want to do Pi Day on July 2nd for Americans. And so what's more American than apple pie? So uh, we've got some apple pie, some ice cream, out on the pet, you're welcome. You're welcome. Out on the pet, just to just to help medicate whatever's going on inside. Just let it, just let the ice cream wash over you. This has always been my favorite tactic. Uh, and um, and then next uh, ne- uh, next week we'll start signups for uh, dodgeball. So so get ready. And then um, we're also taking signups starting today 
for personal table. If you want to come over to our place and we can just brainstorm some ideas about how best to embody this, we would love to have you and can take 30 of you. So uh, let me do our blessing and then please enjoy at 10.30 some apple pie two days early. Let's do it. Let's do it. Calories don't count if they're celebrated in honor of America. Okay? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Amen and amen. My brothers and sisters, what an honor to be with you today. Say hello to somebody and go eat some pie. Yes, blessings. See you later. Good job. We did it. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.